anyway, good morning once again. Um, go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Luke once again. We are going to be back on track here with Luke chapter 1 and looking at verses uh, 15 and 16 again this week. We covered a little bit of ground on those two verses a couple weeks ago, uh, but we have a couple more things that we need to look at in terms of what God is saying to us uh, through Luke. But I promise next week we will be in verse 17. Uh, so as you're turning there, uh, first of all, I just want to publicly uh, thank Josh Wiley for coming up and uh, preaching last week. Uh, we had to put Josh on standby mode a couple weeks ago. Uh, with uh, Steve and I uh, being public safety servants, uh, never you never know who's going to or what's going to be going on that they're going to need to uh, call us for our superpower ability of maintaining public civility. So uh, anyway, I just want to thank Josh Wiley. Uh, he came all the way up from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which is about a three-hour drive, and uh, so we're we're grateful that he was able to come and also willing to come up here. Uh, his mama and his sister were very proud of him, obviously, uh, if you've seen anything on Facebook about them. But uh, anyway, so we're, we're thankful for him to be able to come up and do that. Um, so let's keep working our way through the book of Luke, as we've been doing since the first year. We're in Luke 1 again, and looking at verses 15 and 16. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse 11 again, and all the way through to verse 17. So as you turn there, and if you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 11 once again, and it says this, And and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that it comforts us and guides us and sustains us, Lord. We do thank you for... Uh, the many abundant blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And Lord, we just pray that our hearts and minds would be uh, ready to learn and listen to what you have to say to us uh, through Luke. Father, we just pray that we would glorify you and honor you through this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, since the first year, we've been looking at this marvelous gospel according to Luke, and specifically the events that that, uh, would lead up to the birth of the one who would be called John the Baptist. Now, if you remember rightly, chronologically, uh, these are the earliest events in the New Testament that we're going through here. And God is showing us that in these events, events, that it's not a coincidence 
that Zacharias and Elizabeth would be a godly people who would have a divine messenger show up and announce the miraculous birth of their son, who would be named John. I just want to make sure we're all up to speed and understand that Zacharias was a priest, a God-fearing man, who was righteous in the sight of God, and he was called up by the casting of lots to perform his temple service. Now, this was a high honor, and as we said a couple weeks ago, it's a very unique honor for him because there would have been some 18,000 priests to choose from. Now, if you remember, Zacharias was to go into the most holy place. He was to go inside the temple and to burn the incense at the altar of the incense. They did it morning and night. And this altar of incense sat right before the veil uh, to where the most holy place would be. And that would be the dwelling place of God. And as Zacharias is in there, an angel appears to the right of the altar of incense. And it causes fear to grip Zacharias. Then the angel tells Zacharias, says not to be afraid because his petition has been heard and that the Lord was going to grant that he and Elizabeth were finally going to be parents. Now this was an answer to their prayers. Now this was good news for both them, as the text has told us, that both he and Elizabeth were advanced in the years and Elizabeth was barren. We saw that in verse 7. So, as this is being unfolded, we're seeing that this in, in and of itself is indeed a miraculous birth. The child to be born to this couple wouldn't just be your everyday run-of-the-mill son who would become a, a fisherman or a carpenter or a, a police officer or some skilled tradesman. Sorry, Steve. He was going to be very special. And there was going to be some very distinct qualities about John foretold to Zacharias because God is going to have his hand on John's life even before he was even born. And so we're told in verse 14 that Elizabeth is going to have a son and that they will give him the name John. Now this is where Luke, being the meticulous historian that we talked about several weeks ago, he's going to use something called parallelisms. This is where he's going to chronicle the events leading up to the birth of John the Baptist and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're going to see some similarities. We note that both uh, Elizabeth is going to have a son, as will Mary. It's going to be a miraculous conception with Elizabeth, just as it will be with Mary. Gabriel will appear to make the announcement to both Zacharias and Mary. Both would be troubled at the sight of the angel And both would be told not to be afraid. Both would be associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. Both were told that they were going to name their child this or that. And both were told that their sons would be called great. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus is going to be a rival to John the Baptist, but rather Jesus is going to be displayed as being superior to John the Baptist, but both parallels are going to show us that there's a supernatural hand of God in the conception of both John and Jesus Christ. And so after Zacharias is told that Elizabeth is going to have a son and that they will name him John, Zacharias is told that they will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And we saw that in verse 14. Both that and the fact that God is going to answer their prayers and that their reproach of society will be off of them from the not bearing of children. 
but also that God's silence will be broken, the 400 years of that intertestamental period we had talked about. And so a couple weeks ago, we saw these five declarative statements that started in verse 15, and they followed all the way through to verse 17. The statements are, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, God had disclosed and declared to Zacharias what the life of his son would be like even before he was even conceived in his mother's womb. John's life is laid out before him as to what he will do, who he will be, even before he's able to take his first breath, even before he's even to be consulted or even approved by John. And God tells Zacharias through the angel Gabriel that John will be the forerunner to the Messiah and he will usher in the Messianic age. And so we saw how God sovereignly and providentially predestined what John the Baptist would do and be in his unfolding plan of redemption and redemptive history. Can I be so bold to tell you that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are part of that plan as well? You are not redeemed by accident or happenstance, but you are redeemed by the omniscient and omnipotent mighty hand of God. We saw that in Proverbs 16.9, Psalm 139.16, and Galatians 1.13-17, just to name a few verses from a few weeks ago. We all started out on the same playing field. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sin. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says, We are not saved on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Your salvation, your redemption, your calling, your election as a son and daughter of the King of glory was not a collision of time and matter and chance. But rather, when Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of glory, hung on the cross... He had you in mind. And so a glimpse of John's life would be revealed to Zacharias to show how God's sovereign hand would be over the life of his soon-to-be son. Let's dig into our text a little bit deeper here this morning. In verse 15, it says that, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, this will be a testimony to John's character. If there is anyone that you can be viewed as great by or a person by, you want to be viewed as great by God. Sure, you want to be viewed as great by your spouse. Sure, you want to be viewed as great by your parents. You want to be viewed as great by your peers and your co-workers. But that would be looking at life in a temporal perspective. 
but to be viewed as great by the holy God of the universe, the righteous judge who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, the one who is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart, to be viewed by him is to be truly great. Muhammad Ali, he was a famed boxer in the 1960s and 1970s. He once declared that, I am the greatest. And in the boxing ring, he was a formidable uh, opponent to anyone that got in the ring with him. Yet even Ravi Zacharias, he's known for telling the story one time of how uh, Muhammad Ali was on an airplane. And uh, as he was riding pilot came over the PA system and said, attention passengers, we're getting ready to experience some turbulence. It's going to get a little shaky. I want to remind everyone, please fasten your seat belts. Well, the stewardess came along as she was checking people. If you've ever been on an airplane, they walk through and do the seat belt check and get everything ready. Uh, the stewardess was walking by and Muhammad Ali was on the plane and he's sitting there, but he didn't put on his seat belt like the pilot had asked. And the lady told him, sir, you need to fasten your seat belt. And Muhammad Ali, in his typical egotistical self, said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Well, the stewardess was very quick on her feet, and she turned and looked back at him and quipped. She said, well, Superman don't need no airplane either, so fasten your seatbelt. But many think that greatness is what you accomplish in terms of the sports world or the entertainment world or how much money you can make or how many promotions you can get in the workplace. That's what the world worships, and that's what the world adores. How brash and debased can you get in terms of your character and clothing? How far can you push the edge in terms of language or nudity or sexuality? You don't have to look very far on television and magazines to see that the world views greatness in something that is totally contrary to how God views greatness. The world elevates the proud and the arrogant but God gives grace to the humble. The world elevates the rich and the wealthy, but God blesses the poor and the lowly. The world elevates those who claim to have religious tolerance and diversity, but God elevates those who know the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. You women, you women are especially targeted, and you young women need to listen to this and hear this too that your value and your greatness is not determined by how many Facebook friends you have or how many people like your status or something that you've posted on social media or if you, if you have boys chasing after you or if you even have a boyfriend. And likewise, you ladies out there, you don't have your value and your greatness determined by the images in the magazines that you see in those checkout lines or by some lady named Victoria who's keeping a secret from you, or, or some lady on TV that's telling you you've got to have some six-pack abs in order to be a complete and valuable woman. 1 Peter 3, 3-4 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You see, the world looks at the external. God looks at the internal. The world elevates the arrogant and the haughty and the boastful, but God elevates the humble, the contrite, and the meek. This is very important for you ladies to understand. You are great 
because you are made in the image of God. But John the Baptist, he will be seen as great in the only way that truly matters in light of eternity. And that is he will be seen as great in the sight of the Lord. He won't come from an upper class family. He won't dress in the finest clothing. He won't eat the finest foods and he won't have a formal education. He won't gain any political favor. But he will do great things for God, and thus he will be seen as great by God. So why will he be seen as great in the sight of the Lord? Well, first of all, John the Baptist will be the greatest Old Testament prophet. How is it that you how is that I say that? Well, he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he will see with his own eyes, and he will personally be active in an active player in what the rest of the Old Testament prophets only prophesied about, the coming Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. He will be the one who actually points to the fulfillment of those promises that were made by God, and he will be the bridge between the promises made and the promises fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Even Jesus himself declared in Luke seven twenty eight and in the parallel passage of Matthew eleven eleven that of those born among women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. John is the one who actually gets to say, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John is the one who gets to see the Spirit descend like a dove and remain upon Jesus. Another reason that John the Baptist will be great is that he will live to serve him. John will be the forerunner who will make paths straight and make ready the way of the Lord. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and that just as many kings and dignitaries would send out a party or a caravan ahead of them to prepare the way or make the, make the road smooth and kind of clear the way for them to travel, John the Baptist would do so, but he would be the one who would prepare the way by declaring that the Holy One of Israel was coming and that they should indeed repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John would be great in the sight of the Lord because he will live to serve God. Now, a couple more reasons that John will be great in the sight of the Lord is in the following sentences uh, and will comprise of one being the external and physical and the other being the internal and the spiritual. First of all, the external and the physical. It says that he will drink no wine or liquor. First of all, the external and physical greatness will, because, will be because he will drink no wine and no liquor. He will not be controlled or coerced by anything that will compromise his mission of preparing the way of the Lord. He won't be disqualified or downplayed by any accusations of drunkenness. He won't have anything uh, to do with any mind-altering or controlling substances that will bring shame upon the Lord. He won't use medicinal marijuana. Okay? He will live a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit, and he will not become drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, as Ephesians 5.18 says. Now, Many uh, theologians have argued back and forth a little bit about this part. Is, is this instructions or is this declaring that there will be a Nazarite vow upon John the Baptist as outlined in number, uh, number 6 and the similar accounts of Samson and Judges and Samuel and 1 Samuel 1? And the language that Gabriel uses uh, is very similar to the language that he used 
to Samson's parents in Judges 13, 3 through 5. Now listen to this. It says this, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. You see the commonality there? You see the parallels there? So there's a basically a couple restrictions for a Nazarite vow. No wine, no strong drink. Don't cut your hair. And you weren't allowed to touch a dead body. That's what a Nazarite vow would be. And you would be set apart for the Lord's use. Now, the account in Luke that we have, obviously it omits that John should not cut his hair and that he should not touch a dead body. So, was John the Baptist to take a Nazarite vow? Well, the scriptures aren't completely clear, but it would seem highly possible. Uh, So that's a confirmation of the external and physical greatness of John. There's also the, the internal and the spiritual greatness of John in that it says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, what does this expression mean that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb? Well, when we take a survey of Scripture... It is predominantly used by Luke in both Luke and Acts. It's actually used nine times. And it's usually indicative of a supernatural empowerment to speak boldly or to speak prophetically or to have an effective ministry. Yet there's a couple things we need to consider about this. First of all, when it says that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit, we have to consider that this was done in order to have John live under the influence, the control, and the power of the Holy Spirit. He would, not, he would be dominated by the will of God. His life's goal would be to do nothing but the mission and the purpose that God had set before him. He wouldn't care about his societal status. He wouldn't care about his clothing. He wouldn't care about his diet. He would be singularly focused on preaching repentance to all who would come into the wilderness to hear him preach from Jerusalem to Judea to all of the district around the Jordan. John's mission was to go before the Lord, preach repentance, and then to identify the Messiah. That was his task. And to have any sense of accomplishment in order to have any tangible benefits wrought out uh, by his preaching, he would need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do so. The power lies in the message and not the messenger so as not to take away from God. That's what Paul relied on first in 1 Corinthians 2, and that is what John the Baptist would indeed rely on himself. He would simply preach that the Messiah is coming and people need to repent, and he would need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do so. But it's interesting to note that it says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So you might say, so what? What's the so what? Well, the so what is the fact that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he even takes his first breath. He's not even able to speak the words that God would want him to speak yet. 
He's not even able to proclaim repentance to Jerusalem and Judea. He's not able to declare the one whose sandal that he would be unworthy to to, to untie. He's not even able to state that there is one who will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. He's not even able to profess that there is one that is mightier than he. And yet the scripture tells us that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born, and yet he would indeed do all these things in his lifetime by that power. So, why not wait to have John the Baptist get filled with the Spirit later? Why not have some sort of inauguration uh, with the Holy Spirit coming down like a a dove upon him, or some sort of cataclysmic event uh, like a rushing wind or an earthquake to signify that the Holy Spirit has indeed come upon John the Baptist? What's the purpose of having him be filled with the Spirit before birth? Well, that leads us to our second point. The second thing we need to note is that when it says that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, we need to understand that this is God's sovereign choice and salvation. We saw last week how even Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5 wrote, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. We saw a similar understanding in the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.15, when he realized that although he had lived his life as a blasphemer and a violent aggressor, that he recognized that he was set apart even while in, from his mother's womb and that he would be used mildly to spread the gospel throughout the world. Consider when Paul came to Ephesus in Acts 19.2. It says that he found some disciples, and he asked them, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we hadn't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Well, then Paul preaches Jesus to them. Paul gives them the gospel. And then it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they were able to prophesy and speak in tongues, and thus they added to the number of the church. And so God has rested his spirit and filled John the Baptist with the Holy Spirit, not only consecrating and sanctifying or setting him apart, but also to justify him in the sight of God since before his birth. John 1.13 says that those who are, are children of God are not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, many Old Testament saints went straight to heaven when they either died or did not even die. We think about Enoch, it tells us, In Genesis 5.24, it says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There was two people, Enoch, and then the other one was Elijah. Elijah, in 2 Kings 2.11, he was a prophet, and it says that he was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. Even in Matthew 22.23-32, Jesus rebukes the Sadducees who are arguing against the resurrection. But notice what Jesus tells them in verses 31 and 32. He says this to them. He says, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken by God? I am the God of Abraham. Not I was, not in the past, but currently right now. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, these words only make sense to us and have any kind of meaning 
if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all living in the presence of God at that very moment. So my question would be to those who argue that John the Baptist was not justified before the sight of the God, before the sight of God, is how could the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is both imminent and transcendent, fill John the Baptist in his mother's womb and yet have God not allow him to come into heaven into his presence? As Steve taught a couple weeks ago, there's only two families in this world, those who are the child of God and those who are the child of the devil. You're either a saint or you ain't. John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament saints, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, as it says in verse 15. I think we can be pretty confident to conclude that we will see him in heaven. And lastly, in verse 16, it says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. As the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, uh, John the Baptist would be the one who would make ready a people for the Lord by preaching to them to repent and turn back to God, and so that they would be ready for the coming Messiah. By the simple preaching of a man, many would be convicted of sin and thus have a change in orientation or a change in direction in their life. They would turn away from sin and turn to God. But we must understand that repentance is preceded by conviction. If you think about if you're walking along and you see something that's sin, conviction is stopping. Repentance is turning away from that and turning to God. And we've talked about this before, that belief drives behavior. Orthodoxy drives orthopraxy. And your conviction about sin drives your repentance. If you make light of sin, you won't see the need for repentance. But the closer that you walk with God and the closer you get to God's holiness, the more sinful you will truly see yourself and your utter dependence upon him for the forgiveness of that sin. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, He defines repentance as a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You see, genuine repentance will result in a changed life. And John the Baptist will be the one who preaches in the wilderness and bring many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. There will be many conversions under the preaching of of John. That's what that word, those words mean. He will turn back. There will be many conversions under the preaching of John, and many will be prepared for the ushering in of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, what about you this morning? Are you living a life of repentance towards God? Are you drawing near to the holiness of God by walking with him? Are you living your life by being devoted to his glory? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? And are you, or are you consistently filled with the world's pursuits and the world's lusts and the world's desires? Do you care more about your societal status and about your food and your clothing more than you do your daily intake of God's word and prayer and spending time with him? 
Would you be seen as great in the sight of the Lord, the only one to whom being seen as great actually matters in light of eternity? Those are some things for us to think about this morning as we think about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us, Lord. We just pray that we would be disciplined to study your word, to draw near to you, and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Lord. Help us to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, Lord. Help us to have our treasure as you. Treasure you above all earthly things. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that indwelt in John, you have given freely to us. Lord, we just pray that you would help us and give us strength to walk in this world, not as unwise and foolish men and women, Lord, but as wise wisdom from you. Increase our faith and help us to be strong and draw our strength from you. Father, we thank you for all these things, and we thank you for your word. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.